host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. I have entitled this lecture, The War Rages On. So tonight we are going to step aside from the Second Continental Congress and the political side of the war, and we're going to talk strictly about war-related materials. Although I guess I am going to start with the Second Continental Congress just briefly. John Adams, our friend that we've seen several times and who will go on to be second president, which John Adams and his son John Quincy Adams, it's so interesting to me. You could make an argument that being president was like the least significant thing they had done in their political careers. They, they had such long, rich, illustrious political careers and very mediocre presidencies. But John Adams, while he was on the Second Continental Congress, he pushed hard for a Continental Navy. He thought that that was something that we needed to have. Now, nobody was fooled into thinking that we could match British Britain's Navy. Britain's Navy was the greatest the world had ever seen up to that point, and really wouldn't be surpassed until World War II, probably. I'm, I'm just guessing here, but I'm, I'm remembering my research. I'm pretty sure Britain's Navy was still greater than ours in World War I. And I'm pretty sure, no, I'm absolutely sure Britain's Navy was better than ours at the beginning of World War II. Now, at the end of the World War II, my goodness, we had uh, an outstandingly large and obnoxiously massive Navy, but that's because... Well, unlike Japan, uh, yeah. Unlike Japan, as the war went on, our industrial capacity grew by the day, and their industrial capacity sunk. So we were pump, pumping out ships that, uh, during peacetime, might take a year and a half. We were pumping them out in weeks. Because yeah. all those women were home and didn't have women, Latinos, yeah, uh, the th- those who had, those who came back with war injuries, who maybe you got some fingers shot off or something, but you can still work. So. Pretty much everybody was mobilized. And yes, definitely the women, like Rosie the Riveter, who is a fictional character, but she represented all the the females. But yeah, we grew to be the world's greatest navy, which we are today. But at the time, they weren't really. So on October 13, 1775, so this is before the Declaration, we launched the Continental Navy. John Adams served as the chairman of the Naval Committee for the first year of the war, Afterwards, I'm not sure they needed a chairman anymore because this fellow, Esoc Hopkins, uh, Esac Hopkins, I suppose, it's not really a name I've ever seen before. Every time I put it on, in Google, it tries to change it to Seek. 
it thinks I'm misspelling something. Isaac Hopkins was assigned as the Commodore of the Navy and served as the commander of the Navy throughout the war. Now that surprised me as I was doing my research because I was absolutely sure that John Paul Jones was our highest naval commander during the war. John Paul Jones was certainly our most decorated Navy officer during the war, but no, Hopkins was in overall command of the Navy during the war. Jones was the first American officer to attain a lieutenant status. Now, you might remember this from the Civil War class. The U.S. Navy neglected to have a complex system of officers until halfway through the Civil War. In other words, they, the U.S. Navy did not see the hierarchical system as necessary. Now, the Army had it. You had generals and majors and everything all the way down to privates. But in the U.S. Navy, there was basically seamen, lieutenants, and captains. And that was really it. There was no need for admirals or, or any kind of specialty ranks in between. It was really just three ranks. And whenever a higher officer was needed, so if you had like a flotilla with three or four ships going into battle against the Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean, for instance, then one captain, either selected for this or that reason or whoever had the most experience, would be elevated to the rank of Commodore. But that rank was usually a temporary rank. And so officially the highest rank the highest rank in the Navy was captain. That would change during the Civil War when the United States, the Union Navy realized that that was an antiquated system and we needed to fix it. But anyway, back to the Revolution, the Continental Navy was extremely limited. As I said earlier, it had no chance of matching the British Navy in open warfare in the sea, and they didn't even try. There was very limited engagements with the British Navy. In fact, there were a limited number of ships and frigates, period. Most U.S. sailors were merchant sailors that were recruited. And probably some whalers as well, but I didn't run across any of that in my research. But I'm assuming. Any Americans who were used to being out on the sea. So basically, the Continental Navy's job, their main job, was to disrupt British shipping. They wanted to at least hurt Britain's ability to ship goods in general to hurt them economically, but I'm assuming also to cut off goods from the British army that was serving on the continent. But there were also some daring raids. Let's see if I have a... I do not. I'll leave it that one up there, because that's the last time we'll mention Essex Hopkins. Even though he was an overall command, John Paul Jones was a much more interesting character. Uh, so I don't have a slide for the raid of Nassau. Has anybody been on a cruise, been to the Bahamas? Nassau is the capital of the Bahamas, and so we actually took the war to the Bahamas, briefly. It was a, a quick raid to steal some gunpowder, and it was successful. After the raid of Nassau, John Paul Jones here, who I will mention in a few minutes again, was raised to captain. As captain, he took the war even farther. I hadn't realized it, but he actually took the war to England. He took his ship and he attacked a, a small town called Whitehaven in northern England on the Irish Sea. So right, just like if you're in Scotland and you go along the coast just a little bit, you're in Whitehaven. And he attacked it, brought the war to British shores. Since I used a World War II analogy earlier, it's similar to Doolittle's raid. It was bold. It struck the right chord. We, you know, it, it 
brought the war to the doorstep of the enemy, but unlike Doolittle's raid, which was a harbinger of more attacks to come, uh, there was really no more attacks on, on English soil, or at least the island of Great Britain. This was kind of a one-off. This attack was April 20th, 1778, in case you're wondering. That's the attack on Whitehaven. The British Navy, as a fighting force, wasn't really challenged until the French got involved in the war, and we're going to talk about that in about an hour. After the war, let's jump ahead a little bit, the United States shuttered the Continental Navy in 1785. Navies were seen as expensive and unnecessary. The conventional wisdom was that the United States only needed enough military prowess to defend ourselves in case we got invaded. There was no idea of ever having to go to war somewhere else. It wouldn't take long before we changed our minds. In fact, one of our first wars as an independent nation was attacking the Barbary pirate states along the north coast of Africa. That was under Thomas Jefferson, our third president. So it didn't take long before we were fighting foreign wars. But in 1785, the thought was we did not need a navy. So through the eight years of... Oh, hey, there you go. You're wearing your navy shirt. Through the eight years of the Revolutionary War, the Continental Navy had 65 ships that at some point or another fought or or was engaged in the war. Now, most of those would only be like one-offs and then maybe the ship would be sold or destroyed or whatever. There was only really about 13 ships that saw significant action during the war and at the close of the war they had 11 left between ships that were destroyed or already sold off or were already being used for other purposes. So in 1785, the Congress decided to sell it all. The last ship to be sold was the Alliance. And there was really a lot of heartbreak in selling this ship because it was the, it was the ship that fired the last shot of the war. And selling it really broke some hearts, but the United States government just couldn't afford to maintain even one ship. That was just too much for the federal government under the Articles of Confederation, a government that could not raise any money. What is the Constitution, the ship the Constitution fit into that? that Are you going to talk I actually about was that just about, no, I was going to bring it up right the second. <laughs> uh, there's a ship now called Old Ironsides. Yeah. The, that's its nickname, it's the USS Constitution. It was put into service, I want to say, I want to say it was used during the Barbary War, but I know for a fact it was in the War of 1812. So I think it was, it was around before that, but I know for a fact it was in, in 1812. The United States, for sentimental reasons, and I've got to believe that losing the alliance is one of the reasons, the United States has maintained that ship for... 200 some odd years now. Now, at certain times, the United States kind of forgot they had it and it was starting to rot in a little bit, but in more modern times, it's, it's treated as kind of a mascot of the Navy. A certain amount of sailors are given the honor of serving aboard old Ironsides and they have to learn all the riggings and, and basically they need to learn how to run a sail ship. Here's the irony now. The Old Ironsides, the USS Constitution, is the only active Navy ship that has ever sunk an enemy ship. Wow. Yep, every, every ship that sunk an enemy in 
World War One, Two, and Korea and Vietnam, they've all been retired by now. Is it on the water? I believe it's in Baltimore. Well, it's is it's? It's either Baltimore, or Boston. I forget. Boston. But it, yeah, Boston. it is a it is a tourist attraction. But oh. it is it Boston? Yeah, and they take it out. They do take it out. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, that's why it's still an active ship. Yeah, it is. I was, that's what I was about to say. It is a tourist attraction, but it's not. That's not strictly what it is. In theory, it is an active duty ship that could go to war if we needed it to. Which, in which case, the smallest modern ship of, of any navy in the world could blow it out of the water because it's a big wooden ship. But uh, in theory, it's an active ship. I was pretty impressed with it. it. It's neat. I haven't got the chance to see it with my eyes, but I've seen a lot of stuff on YouTube, and it's, it's a neat thing. All right, so the Continental Navy gets shuttered. And so while the U.S. Army claims its inception as June 14, 1775, because that Continental Army just continues to exist and morphs into the U.S. Army today, in reality, the Continental Navy shut down. It's a forerunner of the modern U.S. Navy, but not the beginning of it. The U.S. Navy, the, of the shirt that you now wear, that... Navy was officially founded on March 27, 1794. Now it gets a little tricky with the Marines because the Continental Marines were soldiers and I was told by a Marine I work with at Old Dominion, I mean obviously not an active Marine but uh, an, old, an old veteran, I was told that in the Marines they were taught that the original Marines were like snipers. They, they would sit in the highest mast of ships and pick off enemy targets. But generally speaking, most of what I read is the Marines were basically soldiers on ships. So like whenever the ship needed active fighting men to like a landing party or whatnot, that's what the that's the job of the Marines. Now and now it's, pretty, it's almost the same thing. The Navy's job now is transporting Marines. That's a lot of what a lot of the ships do. With the exception that the Marines are now a, their own unit. Yeah, but they still are transported. Yeah, they're them. still very connected. They're In fact, if you're transport. a if you are a Marine officer, or if you want to become a Marine officer, there is no United States Marine Academy. There is a United States Military Academy, which is the team called Army in Upper State New York. There's Navy, the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. There's the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado, but there's no United States Marine Academy. Uh, if you want to be an officer, you have to go to the military academy, or most of them go to the Naval Academy. And then you graduate from the academy and then transfer over to the Marines. Or so I've been told. I'm sure that... It's kind of a joke with the Navy guys that they're the a taxi for the Marines. <laughs> well, if we ever fight... <laughs> knock on wood... Hopefully we'll never fight China, but if we do, it'll be a Navy-on-Navy Navy war again. They've got a big old Navy. And so if, if that's the case, they won't be the taxi for the Marines anymore. They will be an active fighting service, just like World War II. Well, speaking of the Marines, so the Continental Marines were founded on November 10th, 1775, and I was told by my veteran friend at work that it was in a bar. That they, in a bar, they, they sat down and worked it out and got it all going. And I know for a fact that the modern Marines celebrate November 10th as the date of their inception. That's an issue, though, because the Continental Marines shut down just like the Continental Navy did. The actual birthday, the actual founding of the modern Marine Corps is July 11th, 1798. But don't tell that to a Marine. 
when the Continental Navy was shut down, its experienced sailors, most of them went into commercial shipping, but some of them went into foreign service. For instance, John Paul Jones. He was a good-looking guy. Yes, and very young. He, he dies at 45. Mm. He's a very young guy. John Paul Jones serves with the Imperial Russian Navy and is promoted to Rear Admiral. Remember, Admiral doesn't exist in the American Navy until the Civil War. Farragut. The Farragut is, is our great Admiral, the one who straps himself to the uh, mast. I, actually, I think he has himself strapped to the mast. He, uh, they say, what about the torpedoes? He says, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. That's Farragut. That's Civil War. So anyway, John Paul Jones was made into a rear admiral for the Russian Navy. Unfortunately for him, he got caught up in palace intrigue. Some people thought he might have been getting a little too uh, powerful. Or at least that's the interpretation of what happened, because here's what he was accused of. A 10-year-old girl accused John Paul Jones of rape. And his defense was a little less than one would hope. Now, he later, he would deny it all. He would deny it ever happened. But apparently, at first, he claimed to have paid her for sex on several occasions. That it was not rape, it was pavement. And he also was adamant that she was not ten. He was adamant she was much older than that. Now, this was hundreds of years ago, so, you know, maybe he was claiming she was 15, 16. That was generally more acceptable then. It wouldn't be acceptable today. But like I said, he later denied it all. Despite his lackluster defense, most people who have looked into the accusation believe that it was probably a lie, and it was probably an attempt to remove him from power. And it worked. He was exiled from Russia and died from kidney disease in Paris at the age of 45. So was he Russian or, or was he an American? He was Scottish-American. Scottish-American. I believe he was born Russia? in Scotland and he, was a, he got, got himself a job. He found a Navy that needed an experienced sailor with uh, war experience and was good enough at his job to be an admiral, and they found one. They hired him. That's probably the last we'll talk about the Navy, at least until we talk about France. We might talk a little bit, because the, Na the French Navy certainly plays a role in Yorktown. But that's probably the last time we talk about the Continental Navy. So let's move on. So that's not the same as Davy Jones, where they talked about Davy Jones' locker and no. he died and... No, I, in, I believe in, that's. I believe Davy Jones was a pirate, and I also think he might have been a fictional pirate, but uh -huh. I don't know that for a fact. I do know that he is a character on Pirates of the Caribbean, one of the sequels, where he's got a big squid beard, and that is definitely fictional. But yes, Davy Jones' locker is a reference to stuff that falls to the bottom of the ocean and you never get it back. All right, so moving on, we'll talk about the Snow Campaign. I don't know much about this, but I don't think I need to. Basically, here's the, de the only details we need. In November and December 1775, so we're still before the Declaration, Loyalists were setting up recruiting stations in South Carolina. So South Carolina at this point is not overwhelmingly patriot. In fact, the Loyalists feel comfortable enough that they actually set up these stations where they're trying to recruit South Carolinians to fight for Great Britain. So 3,000 men under Colonel Richard Richardson attacked these recruiting efforts, and the last days of this campaign saw a major 
snowfall, which is rare for South Carolina, but it was fought in a major snowfall, hence the snow campaign. Next, we'll talk about Lord Dunmore's proclamation. John Murray, known as the fourth Earl of Dunmore, John Murray was the royal governor of Virginia. Now, these colonies are going to transition as they declare their independence, they'll start electing their own governors. But remember, in 1775, in theory, none of these colonies are independent yet, so all the governors serve Great Britain. So this is, he's not even a loyalist, he's from England. So he's obviously loyal, but hes that's where he's from. He's from England. John Murray, the fourth Earl of Dunmore. He proclaims, so I'm, I'll put the proclamation back up on screen. He proclaimed that any slave or indentured servant, so it's not just a black slavery thing, it's also those who sell themselves into a indentured servitude for a certain amount of time. If you serve a patriot, specifically not a loyalist, but if you serve a patriot, somebody who's disloyal, and you come join the British Army, you'll be freed. We'll free you, free and clear. That was finalized and proclaimed on November 15, 1775. Between 800 and 2,000 of these slaves and indentured servants would take him up on the offer. Now that's quite a, eight, between 800 and 2,000, it's just hard to quantify exactly. But we know at least 800 and as, maybe as many as 2,000. Now here's the rub. All of them claim to be from patriot owners. Many of them came from loyalist owners. And that's why this was actually a bad move on his part. Now from our perspective, in 2024, slavery's bad. Anybody, even a Brit, uh, you know, during the American Revolution who fights against slavery, that's a good thing. But let's not fool ourselves here. Lord Dunmore was not doing this because he was a woke you know, man of his time, he was doing it to hurt the patriots. If all he cared about was those stuck in slavery and he hated slavery as an evil, then he wouldn't have limited it to just slaves of patriots. He was very clearly trying to do this to, uh, to hurt those who were disloyal to Great Britain. And since, the, from the slaves' perspective, they didn't care you know, whether they served a patriot or a loyalist, they just wanted to be free. So what happened is it caused many loyalists to flip. In 1775, Virginia has quite a bit of loyalism in the state. Lord Dunmore's proclamation flips that script pretty quickly to where many people who were kind of maybe in the maybe they were mildly loyalist or they hadn't made up their mind yet, all of a sudden became patriots. Because Virginians from the late 1600s until the day the last slaves' irons are taken off at the end of the Civil War, Virginians lived in mortal fear of slave uprisings. And so what they saw was the British seemingly encouraging a slave uprising. So they're all imagining their wives and daughters and sons being slaughtered in their sleep by angry and vindictive slaves. Therefore, a lot of people who might have been loyal to Great Britain switch. They flip. Now, Dunmore leaves office in 1776, and when he goes home, 300 former slaves go with him out of Virginia. But Lord Dunmore is not the last person to do this. Lord Dunmore is not the last person to try this out. 
Jump ahead to 1779, General Henry Clinton, no relation to Bill, issued a similar offer in 1779. This was known as the Phillipsburg Proclamation, and that is June 30th, 1779. So he basically makes the same offer. So when the war ended, thousands, not 300 with Lord Dunmore, but thousands of former slaves went with the British out of the colonies. A lot of them went to Nova Scotia, Canadian province. But a lot of them went to Sierra Leone in Africa. And there they founded the capital city known as Freetown, which is the capital of Sierra Leone today. Let's talk about the destruction of Norfolk, Virginia. This is January 1st, 1776. So, Happy New Year. Your city is now destroyed. The British Navy shelled the town after the loyalists in the town had virtually abandoned it. And so landing parties from these ships were sent to destroy specific locations, namely known patriot hotspots and strongholds. As from what I can gather, as I read about it, patriot forces then fought those landing parties, but they did very little to stop the fires that were, were being set. Instead, the patriot forces dedicated any of the time that they weren't actively fighting the landing parties uh, to looting loyalist properties. And finally, at the end, the patriots themselves completed the destruction of the city in order to deny the British the use of Norfolk. So both sides kind of worked together to destroy Norfolk, Virginia. And we, we have a naval base there now. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I did not know that. I didn't know they had that history. Speaking of interesting history, uh, and I couldn't find I, I I wanted to find a slide for this, but I couldn't find one. There's no drawing of this person that, that I know of, or at least not one that I could find on the Internet today. Uh, and the person is a guy by the name of Thomas Hickey. Well, who was that? He was an American soldier, and he served in George Washington's lifeguard. So basically think Secret Service, a group of soldiers who would go with him everywhere to protect him. On June 28th, 1776, so really literally just like a week before the independence, he was hung by the Americans. Now why would we hang one of George Washington's lifeguards? Well, apparently, uh, Soldier Hickey was involved with a plot that it may or may not have involved New York City Mayor David Matthews, as well as other people, to assassinate George Washington. Hickey was arrested and was going to be charged on uh, something else. Uh, I believe he was counterfeiting colonial money, uh, if if I'm not mistaken. He was arrested, and while he was in prison, apparently he confessed to one of the other prisoners who then ratted out on him, and he was tried, convicted, and hung for an attempted assassination on George Washington. Hmm. All right, so... Last time we talked about the war, a few weeks ago, we left off with the British leaving Boston. That's March 17th, 1776. All right, so after the British evacuate Boston, George Washington moves his focus to New York City. Most of what happens after this is is not successful. George Washington does not have a good showing in New York City. First, the Battle of Long Island. So Long Island today is got some less than urban areas at the end of the uh, island. Um, 
New York City is referred to it as rural, but to our eyes, I'm sure none of Long Island is rural for those of us who actually live in rural America. But at the time, Long Island really was pretty rural except for Brooklyn right at the tail end, and that's where the fighting was happening. In fact, the battle is sometimes, it's, it's called the Battle of Long Island, but in most of the books I read about the American Revolution, they refer to it as Brooklyn Heights. In fact, this ended up being the largest battle of the war in terms of total men committed to the fight on both sides. Which surprised me. I was sure Yorktown would have that honor. But apparently, no, it's Brooklyn Heights was the largest battle of the war. And it was a thorough and complete British victory. The Americans had to retreat from Brooklyn over across to Manhattan. Now, apparently, it was a quite daring retreat. They used as many flatboats as could be found and retreated across the East River. I don't know my New York City geography well enough off the top of my head, but I believe it's the East River. In the middle of the night, they crossed over, and by the time the British got ready for the fight the next morning, they were surprised to see that the Patriots were gone. They did not anticipate their ability to retreat. So then that, that would, did I give you a date on that one? That was August 26th, 1776. Actually, yeah, it's right there on the screen. Next, the Battle of Harlem Heights. This is a few weeks later. So the American army has moved on to Manhattan Island and I'll show you a map in a second that juxtaposes where the battles happen but also shows you the city layout as it exists today with roads etc but this was in the middle Harlem Heights basically right in the middle of Manhattan Island this is September 16th 1776 and this was an American victory which I believe is the only American victory in this whole campaign in New York City because immediately after Harlem Heights, we have a couple of pretty bad losses. And October 28th, so I'm actually kind of surprised how long it took for the British to kick the Americans out of Manhattan. But at White Plains on October 28th, and then Fort Washington, which is named after, it was named in George Washington's honor. Fort Washington is at the highest point of Manhattan Island. And that battle was November 16th, and the British won both of those, and the Americans had to evacuate the city. What is the result of these four battles? Well, New York City would remain in British control throughout the rest of the war. In fact, Washington rides into New York City pretty much as the British are evacuating. This is after the war is over, after the Treaty of Paris, Washington always wanted to come back and liberate the city. It was always a goal of his to do that. And he was never able to do that. He was never in a position throughout the rest of the war to be able to liberate the city. Uh, it would not be him to do the liberating. It would be the diplomats in Paris who worked with the British to come up with the treaty. Next, ships in Wallabout Bay, which I guess is part of the water around the city somewhere. Ships in Wallabout Bay were used as prison ships. And these prison ships were basically hell on earth. So, for instance, about half of the prisoners that were taken at the Battle of Brooklyn Heights or the Battle of Long Island, about half of them died in prison. So a greater percentage of prisoners died than soldiers actually in the war with bullets flying around them. These ships were basically war crimes. 
the British did not see the Patriots as true soldiers. The British basically treated Patriot soldiers as, at best, pirates, and at worst, terrorists. And they treated them as such. There was a fire that destroyed about a quarter of the city, which may have been started by retreating American forces. With New York City under British control, a spy ring develops. Oh, before I move on, yeah, yeah, that's a uh, picture, that's a drawing of the Battle of Fort Washington. All that city now, everything you see there is, is now covered with a big old city. That's Battle of White Plains, Battle of Fort Washington, and I told you there was a juxtaposed, you can kind of see, so there's Harlem Heights, basically right in the center of the city, or right in the center of Manhattan, and then Fort Washington right there at the highest point of the city. So that's Long Island? Is that what you No, this is Manhattan Island. This is Long Island. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you talk to a, a person from New York City, out here is basically the most rural area the world has ever known. And that's because they've never been to Kansas. Or, God forbid, Wyoming or North Dakota. Here is the most dense urban area in America, and there's a lot of traffic problems right now. Look at that. Quite a bit of traffic problems. This is Brooklyn, right at the tip of Long Island. And then this is Manhattan Island right here. So you see there's a little river that goes through here. And then above Manhattan Island, this is Yonkers, New Rochelle, some suburbs up here. And then across Manhattan Island, across the Hudson, is New Jersey. Hmm. Does that help? Yeah. That's how it is now. Yeah, the, the city streets are how it looks now. At the time, New York City was basically here, just the tip of Manhattan. Brooklyn was considered a totally different city until the Brooklyn Bridge gets made. That's in the late 1800s, 1876, if I recall. Once that connection is made, then people actually start to think of it as one big city. But up until that time, people thought of Brooklyn and, and New York City as totally different cities. And during the American Revolution, really, it's just the tip of Manhattan Island. All this up here is like farmland. All right, so New York City is under, at this point, is under British control for the remainder of the war. So Washington recruits a young man to stay in town. Nathan Hale's only 21 years old. He is a young man. And he volunteers to stay in the city to spy on the British. Unfortunately, Mr. Hale was completely untrained as a spy. He never bothered to take an assumed name. He just went as Nathan Hale. In fact, his plan was to get a job as a teacher in the city and so he was carrying his Yale diploma, which revealed his identity. And a loyalist who recognized him approaches him and pretends to be a fellow patriot. And Hale immediately reveals his whole mission. And so he was arrested, tried, and hung. He is reported to have said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. That's Nathan Hale. Hale was replaced by the Culper Ring, which was a much more successful spy ring that lasted throughout the remainder of the war. Say it again. Culper. Culper. 
the name apparently there's I'm I'm not sure this is absolutely known for sure, but the name was apparently made by George Washington himself, who was from the Culpeper area of Virginia. And so it was just shortened to Culper, because the Culper was not the name of any of the individuals who took part in the ring. However, two of the leaders on the ground were men by the name of Abraham Woodhull and Robert Townsend. And those two men went by the aliases Samuel Culper Sr. and Samuel Culper Jr. So they went ahead and used that name. And those two answered to Benjamin Talmadge, who worked directly for George Washington. And so the spy ring in New York City would continue through the remainder of the war. And as the British remained in the war, they were able to come up with quite a bit of good intel. And what is interesting is quite a few of the people in this spy ring were women. Women were seen as not a threat, and so British soldiers tended to have looser lips around women. And so the Culper spy ring was pretty successful. There's a... Brian Kilmeade, I believe is who it is. He's a Fox News personality. But Brian Kilmeade in his spare time likes to moonlight as an historian, and one of his books is Washington Spies. It's actually not bad. He did his research. It's a decent book. It revealed a lot of details about the, this spy ring that I had never known before. So, uh, yeah, I'll recommend it. Brian Kilmeade, Washington Spies. All right, so the British reached out to make peace. John Adams was completely skeptical. But he was assigned by the Second Continental Congress to meet Lord Admiral Richard Howe. Seen here. Now, interestingly enough, Lord Richard Howe was a Navy man, and his brother is General Howe, who we will talk about quite a bit moving on. So they were brothers. They would both serve as the Viscount Earl Howe uh, because this... Which Howe am I talking about? Is this Richard? Let me look at my notes. Yeah, William Howe is the younger brother. This is Richard Howe. The Admiral, Lord Richard Howe, dies before his brother, so both brothers end up having this title of Lord Howe. So anyway, Adams, as well as Benjamin Franklin and Edward Rutledge, are sent by the Second Continental Congress to meet with Lord Howe. So they meet in the home of a loyalist on Staten Island, they're promised safe conduct, and, and they were. They Obviously, they survived. John Adams would go on to become president, for instance. Though this meeting, almost nothing happened. Right out of the gate, Howe admitted that he had no authority to negotiate terms and that any deal that they made would be contingent upon the repeal of the Declaration of Independence. And so, of course... Adams and Franklin and Rutledge denied that. It was a completely unsuccessful attempt at peace. But it was an attempt. So you got to give the British credit for that. And you got to give the Second Continental Congress credit for at least listening. But both sides knew it was futile. They were at a point in the war and in the revolution that it, it was really not in a place where everything could go back to the way it was anyway. So now on to some battles. The Battle of Fort Lee... November 20th, 1776. This is a British victory, which is something we will say quite a bit tonight. The British won. You, more often than not, when armies met on a field, the British would win. More often than not. That's just a fact of the war. 
which makes it interesting that, that they lost the war. Why do you think that is? Let's, let's bunny trail here for a second. Why do you guys think that a, a, an army could lose... Because they weren't at home. Say what? They were not at home. The British? Mm-hmm. Correct. In order for the British to win, they would have to force America to the point of capitulation. We would have to basically bow thy knee and do whatever they say. But for the Americans to win, the only thing that needs to happen is for the British to get sick of fighting and go home. That's all that needs to happen. That's one of the reasons why America has had kind of a rough run of wars lately, is because more often than not we find ourselves on foreign shores against forces who all they really need to do is outlast us. And I'm sensing that that might be the situation in Ukraine now. Right now, Ukraine is in a bad way. They don't have enough weapons, and they're running out of supplies. But that was always going to be the case. And in fact, Russia's in a similar situation. They just hide it better because they've got a lot more resources to work with. But the war is really unpopular in Russia, at least quietly so. If you go out and chant on the street against the war, it's, you'll disappear. You'll disappear, or at the very least, you'll go to prison for a few days. And you can't. And your family won't. Get to bury him. Yeah. Well, they're they're gonna. If you're talking about Navalny, they're gonna release him. But his wife is convinced that what it is is they're waiting for long enough for the Novacek gas in his or the the poison in his system to biodegrade before they release his body. So I on the news today they said that Russia said about two weeks while they do chemical testing. Well, so. You know how fast bodies deteriorate. So two weeks is really too long to. My guess is they'll keep him in some kind of morgue. So in the refrigerator? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm careful. Like, I know a lot of people assume that Putin had him offed, and that's almost certainly is the case, but I don't know for sure. And it, we, 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 run, we run a lot of risks when we say things that are absolute fact when we don't know for absolute fact. I think one reason the British won so much is that we didn't really have an organized continental army. Well, yeah, it took a while. By the government, you know, they were it took a while for the or army to develop into a well-trained, organized army. It, t- it took a while. But yeah, all Washington had to do was outlast. That's really all he had to do. And as the war wore on, it became even more obvious that that's what. And the British were getting sick of it, and eventually they just grew, grew weary of the fighting. But like I said, tonight, one of our themes of the night is British victory, which happens a lot in the battles we're going to talk about tonight. So, at the Battle of Fort Lee in New Jersey, George Washington had to retreat yet again. Now, after all of his retreats in New York City, this one kind of stung a little bit. In fact, Thomas Paine, who we talked about, who wrote Common Sense, his follow-up to Common Sense was a booklet called The American Crisis with its most famous line being the opening line, these are the times that try men's souls. He's writing after the retreat from the Battle of Fort Lee. So if you're an American patriot living on the continent at this time, you don't really see, you, you might believe in your heart that we'll secure independence at some point, but you have no idea how it's going to happen. As far as we can see, we just see our army getting beat and then beat and then beat and then beat and every time we retreat, so we're not dead, but it it was hard. It was hard being an American patriot at this time. So, Washington knew he had to do something bold. And I think you guys know what's coming. The Battle of Trenton. So on Christmas night, 
Now, I had had my dates incorrect. In my mind, I'd always thought this was Christmas Eve night. But no, this is actually the night of the 25th going into the 26th. So going from Christmas Day into Boxing Day, or Boxer Day. I'm not sure what it's called. We don't, Americans, we really don't celebrate Boxing Day. I'm not even sure what it means. When I was a kid, I literally thought maybe in Canada and Britain they had boxing matches. The day after Christmas had famous boxing day. I think it has something to do with that's the day you put up all your Christmas decorations. But but jokes on them, we still haven't put up all of our Christmas decorations yet. Gretchen has done a lot better at putting up Christmas decorations than I have been, I'm I must say. This year in past years I usually end up getting on the ball and this year I have not been on the ball. Anyway, back to the Battle of Trenton. Christmas night into the morning of December twenty sixth. So after many losses and many retreats, the army was on the verge of collapse, and George Washington knew he needed a big victory before the winter set in. So this is the time in history where during the winter, armies tend to settle in for the winter, and they don't do a whole lot of fighting. He knew that if they they didn't get a big victory before they did that, that it would demoralize the army, and there might not be an army in the spring. And so he famously crossed the Delaware back into New Jersey. So you all know the picture Washington crossing the Delaware by Emanuel Lutz. It's one of the most famous paintings in the world. And of course, I had never, I never paid enough attention to realize that this is not just one boat. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, and maybe implied even more as they're all crossing the Delaware. One of these individuals is supposed to be James Monroe. Here's a picture of James Monroe as about what he would look like at this time. James Monroe, of course, the fifth president of the United States. So there were two presidents in this battle. Now in the picture, in the painting, James Monroe is supposed to be, I believe this might be him on the row, because I've always heard, so it's probably this guy, this guy, or this guy. I've always heard he's supposed to be one of the guys rowing in the picture. I don't know if it's a historical fact that Monroe was in Washington's boat. I don't know that it's not a historical fact. I just, that sounds like something that might have been thrown in. You know, that might be an artist's flourish, as it were. Oh, yeah. It was, now, it probably wasn't that icy. I if it was, if it really was that icy, I'm not sure they could have got the boats across. It was very bad weather that night, though. It might if they were floating, if they, they could push the ice out of the way. But well, for that much ice, it would probably be. I, I guess it could be floating downriver if there was an ice break up river. But chances are that's also an artist's flourish as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we do know. Here's what we do know: there were icy conditions and. Storms, so that's one of the things that's it's kind of stormy in that picture, but not much. It's also too daylight. They crossed when it was dark. So let's jump back a little bit because I got ahead in my notes, so this is the perfect opportunity to jump back a little bit. George Washington famously crossed the Delaware back into New Jersey after many losses and retreats. So the point where he crossed was a place where a bunch of Hessian soldiers were at. I guess this is a point to mention Hesse, H-E-S-S-E, is a region of Germany with ancient ties to the royal family of England. And so the British were able to hire their services as mercenaries. And so a bunch of these Hessian soldiers 
were stationed, I'm, I'm assuming north of Trenton. I wasn't able to confirm this, but I know that they, Washington and his army lands north of the city. The Hessian soldiers, being the good Germans they are, really enjoy Christmas, and they really enjoyed uh, drinking during Christmas, so many of them were still inebriated from their Christmas partying. So this is why it's an important detail. I had always imagined this taking place on New Year's Eve night into Christmas morning. That's what I'm saying. What did I say? New Year's? You said New Year's. Yeah, that's what I meant. Christmas Eve night into Christmas morning. I'm assuming I got Washington mixed up with Santa Claus. Um, no, this is actually Christmas night into uh, the 26th. So the Hessian soldiers have celebrated Christmas. They're pretty much still inebriated. And they also believed that it was very unlikely that the Americans were able to put up any kind of fight in the weather conditions also, they were camped way too far away, and so the Hessians had very few patrols on patrol that night. So they were sitting ducks. George Washington planned this assault, believing he had 3,000 soldiers. But, and this is where I jumped ahead in the notes earlier, icy conditions and the storms prevented 600 of the soldiers from taking part. So he's going into this battle with 2,400. So they land nine miles north of the city. This is in the dark, in the middle of the night. Which and city? Trenton, New Jersey. Okay. So they land nine, nine miles north of Trenton, New Jersey, and they march south, and they catch the Hessians off guard. And so there's a short, fierce battle, but most of the Hessians are in no position to really put up a, a good defense, so they surrender. George Washington's purpose was to push on to Princeton, but at least on this night, he doesn't have enough soldiers to do so. So he settles for this victory, and he retreats back into Pennsylvania with his prisoners. So before I move on, we'll look at all of our slides for the Battle of Trenton. They cross during the night and into the morning, and they started out, that house is still there by the way. That one right there in that picture? Our soldiers didn't have shoes, hardly. They were tied up with any rags they could get. And it's a miracle. It just shows how they would follow Washington after they got across. And it's not that far, but they had to get across the water. Mm -hmm. They marched all the way to Trenton, some of them with no shoes. Nine miles is a good long march, too, in the middle of the and, night. And freezing. And the snow. And a storm. <laughs> yeah. Those so it's, it, it's actually a good thing that Hessians were drunk, because they, they, it's, it's, you might not be in the best fighting shape when you after that kind of march. Well, reading that Washington book, I don't know if it was there or at Valley Forge, where Washington said he could follow the troops by the, the blood in the snow, because they uh, didn't That have sounds shoes. like Valley Forge. They didn't have shoes. You know, it's kind of the same situation. Yeah, they weren't sending them supplies. All right, well, let me look and see. Do I have any important slides? We got pictures of famous people. Now, most of, well, I've pretty much shown all the important slides. So if you want to later, I'll show you what some of these guys look like who I'm pointing out. John Burgoyne looks like an arrogant British guy. <laughs> Horatio Gates looks like a poor man's George Washington. Uh, we've already seen Benedict Arnold from a previous lecture. Benjamin Lincoln looks like a fat George Washington. 
and the Comte de Vergen looks like a French George Washington. So I'll show you the pictures later. In 1776, two battles fought in the streets of Trenton on December 26, 1776 and January 2nd saw the tide of the Revolutionary War begin to turn in favor of the American cause of liberty. Now you said a January 2nd and 3rd? Uh, yeah, no. I said December 26th. That's mm -hmm. when they actually got over there. Yep. And, and then January 2nd, 1777. Yep, then that's from the next thing in my notes is, now remember I said that George Washington didn't have enough men to push on to Princeton. He had wanted to. But he didn't have enough men, so he went ahead and retreated back into Pennsylvania. But about a week later, on January, according to my notes, January 3rd, but this is probably the night of the next morning situation again, so we'll just say January 2nd and 3rd of 1777, George Washington has an attack on Princeton, and it is a successful American victory. Both of those victories did wonders for American morale, both in the army as well as politically and in the street. That being said, remember what I said a few minutes ago, the theme of tonight is British victory, because we're going to go through a lot of British victories before this night is over. During the winter, after the victory at Princeton, George Washington is comfortable with wintering, and they winter in Morristown, New Jersey. So they have a good enough foothold in New Jersey that they don't winter in Pennsylvania. They're actually in New Jersey. And during the winter, the army is engaged in five small skirmishes, but no major battles. So now moving on to the spring. And it was not a good spring for the Americans. Here's a list of British victories. And all the battles, I'm sure, are interesting in their own right, but we're really not going to talk about them all. I'm just going to give you battles and dates. April 13th. These are all 1777. I won't have to say that year each time. So April 13th. Bound Brook in New Jersey. That's the name of the town? Bound Brook, yep. A name of a town or a little stream. Oh. So sometimes battles will be named after a town. Sometimes they'll be named after a physical feature in the region, like a mountain or a stream. Okay. Sometimes they'll, they might be named after a nearby business or in the Civil War, sometimes a railroad junction. Well, sometimes you get a battle named after. So that's... April 13th, April 26th, there's the burning of Danbury, Connecticut. Also a British victory because they do the burning. Ridgefield, Connecticut, that's April 27th, with only one day apart, I'm assuming those are related. Now on the other end of the map, in Florida, the Battle of Thomas Creek, May 17th. Back in New Jersey, on June 26th, a battle called Short Hills. And then the British retake Fort Ticonderoga. So we talked about Fort Ticonderoga a couple weeks ago. That's July 6th. Now we'll come back to that because that's part of Saratoga. There's the Battle of Fort Anne in New York. That's July 8th. Then there's a Battle of Staten Island near New York City, which once again, like I said, George Washington loses a lot around New York City. That's August 22nd. And you thought Bound Brook was a funny name. <laughs> Try this one. Cooch's Bridge. Ooh. Cooch. C-O-O-C-H. Cooch's Bridge in Delaware. That's September 3rd. And then the Battle of Brandywine in Pennsylvania, September 11th. And this is a major battle. 
The rest of them were major in their own right, but they, the, I only point that out to show defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. So Brandywine is, is significant because it's very close to Philadelphia. It is a major battle, and since we lost the Battle of Brandywine, the Second Continental Congress decided to get out of town. So they abandon what is our nation's capital at this time, Philadelphia. And they move first to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and then to York, Pennsylvania. So in theory, that's our second and third national capital. So I'm sure if you did a tourist trek to Lancaster or York, I'm sure they'll point that out. That at one time they were the capital of the United States for a brief period of time. Then... Also in Pennsylvania, so I'm assuming it's also part of this same, the, the battles around Philadelphia and the abandoning of Philadelphia, a battle called Malvern or also known as the Battle of the Clouds. That's September 16th. It's called the Battle of the Clouds because a downpour erupted during the battle. So much water that George Washington's men's cartridges got wet and they really had no way of fighting so they had to retreat. But the rain was so bad it prevented the British from having any kind of pursuit. And so it was just it was just a muck. It was just a, a deluge. The Battle of Paoli, also in Pennsylvania, also in September, September 20th. Also known as the Massacre of Paoli because even though it wasn't a massacre, by definition, like, you know, unarmed the killing of unarmed people. It was two armed units against each other, but get this, four British deaths, 201 American deaths. It was a massive, massive American defeat. And then the Battle of Germantown, October 4th. The Battle of Germantown basically secured Britain's Philadelphia campaign and they were able to capture Philadelphia, where Howe, and this is William Howe, the younger brother of the guy we talked about earlier, Howe decided to winter in Philadelphia, in the city, so he could be comfortable during the winter. What he probably should have done from a strategic standpoint is he probably should have pursued George Washington and pushed his forces to the limit maybe either wiping them out or forcing a surrender. Instead, he winters comfortably in Philadelphia, and the Americans are forced to winter in a place called Valley Forge. Now, Valley Forge is where we'll pick up next week for that lecture, but I don't want to leave you guys on just defeats. So let's talk about a really big victory, and that is Saratoga. So all that we're talking about with George Washington from winter of 17, the January of 1777, so the winter, they wintered in New Jersey, and then that whole year they basically lose, lose and retreat, lose and retreat, and then they end with a big loss, they lose the national capital, and they have to retreat, and they winter in Valley Forge. So all that's happening in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, basically. Saratoga happens in upstate New York. So in June, let me get my bearings. Are we still in 17? Yeah, we're in 1777. So in June, 
Great Britain begins an ambitious campaign in upstate New York. If you imagine from New York City to Albany, that area is known as the Hudson River Valley. So the goal was to take the Hudson River Valley. That would cut all of the American colonies off from New England. So you would have New England and everybody else, and they would be separated. The campaign was initiated by General John Burgoyne. And I'll show you the picture later if you would like to see it. I guess I don't need my phone. I could just set it out here and you guys could pass it around. If you touch the screen, it'll go to something else. But anybody's interesting, you could... That's Gentleman Johnny. That was his name. Gentleman... On on my map, I see the Hudson River. Yeah, that's it. That's the Hudson River Valley. (laughs) Gentleman John Burgoyne. He was the one who planned and initiated the campaign. He moves south, down out of Canada, out of Quebec, down Lake Champlain, the lake that forms part of the barrier between New York and Vermont. And at this time, that barrier is, Lake Champlain is actually an international barrier because Vermont has declared itself a republic. But it is a republic that is completely and totally allied with the American Revolution. And so it won't take long before Vermont is inaugurated in as our 14th or 15th state. I forget whether it's Vermont or Kentucky that comes in first. But Vermont is an independent nation, but they're completely allied with us, especially in this Saratoga campaign. So the Americans have to abandon Ticonderoga. More about that in a second. That's July 5th. And Burgoyne moves in and takes it on July 6th. From there, he moves south into the Hudson River Valley. Now, before we move on, I do want to talk about this. I wasn't able to find a lot of information about what these tribes did during the battle, but the Iroquois Confederacy chose to side with the British during this battle. The Oneida, who are one of the five tribes of the Iroquois Confederacy, however, chose to side with the Americans. So I'm going to chalk that one up to I'm going to find a, I'm going to try to find a book about that, about Iroquois, the Iroquois history of the American Revolution. I'm going to see if there's any books about that. I'm sure there are somewhere, because I'd really like to know all the details about how that one worked out. But the Oneida had already been a little bit of an outlier, even though they're one of the founding tribes of the Iroquois Confederacy. They had initially insisted on neutrality, while the rest of the Confederacy had chosen to side with the British. And so by the time of the Saratoga campaign, they're actually now on the other side of the war against their brothers, the other tribes in the Confederacy. So the Saratoga campaign kicks off with a battle in Bennington. Now the battle takes place in New York, but it's named after a Vermont village, Bennington. So it's right there on the border. That's where those battles happen, right there on the border between New York and Vermont. This is August 16th, 1777. The Americans and the Vermonters attack and kill over 200 German mercenaries. But more importantly, they capture over 700. So altogether, almost 1,000 German mercenaries are taken out of the battle in this, uh, out of this campaign. Now, interestingly enough, they're not all Hessians in this case. There's an area in north-central Germany called Braunschweig, or as the British called them, Brunswick. So, New Brunswick. 
So the Brunswickers or Braunschwagens, I, I, I don't know what they're what you would call them, but they're they're the leaders actually of this group. The all the officers that I saw on Wikipedia about this battle uh, were Brunswick men. But the yeah the Germans are defeated handily by the American and Vermonters. And by the way, these American troops these aren't. Th- this is more like the Battle of Lexington and Concord where it's more regional forces. George Washington has got the Continental Army and they're down doing something else. This is mostly militia forces from New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York, as well as the Vermonters who fight in this campaign. Neither side got the reinforcements that they needed. The Saratoga campaign was inexplicably being coordinated from London. Now, coordinating a war from across the ocean is doable if you have at least a telegraph as a technology. Coordinating this campaign from London was just ridiculous. Well, William Howe didn't get the memo that he was supposed to be part of this campaign. So William Howe sets off and he takes Philadelphia when he was supposed to have been heading up the Hudson River Valley to meet up with gentleman John Burgoyne. So Howe was supposed to be meeting up with Burgoyne and he didn't get the memo. Likewise, George Washington and his entire staff did not anticipate this northern campaign. They did not anticipate Britain striking out at this time and in this location. So that's why, for instance, the Americans had to abandon Fort Ticonderoga. We secured Ticonderoga in a daring raid in the early stages of the war and now we just have to give it up because they hadn't anticipated the need to reinforce the fort. And so both sides are basically going to have to fight with what they got. They're not going to be reinforced. The Americans aren't going to be reinforced. Neither are the British going to be reinforced. So the campaign culminates with two battles. The first battle, September 19th, is a British tactical victory, the First Battle of Saratoga. This is a British tactical victory. But like I said, it's a tactical victory. Burgoyne has command of the battlefield at the end of the day. But in the process, he loses twice as many men as the Americans, who are now under the command of a man by the name of Horatio Gates. Like I said earlier, this is a poor man's George Washington, Horatio Gates. Poor man. So. Yeah, like like if you were to buy George Washington off Timu <laughs> instead of Amazon. Poor man's George Washington, Horatio Gates. So Burgoyne loses twice as many men as Gates. So tactical win means... You've won the battle. Like the battle is over and you control the... The field, Even like you lost more men. Yeah, but he yeah he lost more men, so it was a little bit of a pyrrhic victory. That's a word we borrow from Greek mythology of Pyrrhus, Pyrrhuses. What I forget his name, but the the guy who's no, I'm mixing my my myths. I'll, I'll have to look it up. But a pyrrhic victory basically means you win, but in the process you you got beat up or you lost so much that it actually hurts your ability to win more. It's like if the Chiefs were to win a football game, but in the process, both Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey break their legs and are out for the season. That would be a Pyrrhic victory. So we won the game, but we just lost the the season. So that's basically what happened to Burgoyne. 
And every time I say his name, I always want to say Gentleman John Burgoyne. That's it. That was his nickname, Gentleman Johnny. <laughs> By the way, Burgoyne was an interesting fellow. He was a playwright as well as a an army officer. That's why he was in New York. <laughs> Maybe, but at this time, the playwrights they're all in at London's the center of the of the fancy swan, uh, the swanky play acting world. So let me find my place in my notes. Uh, also with Gates is. Benedict Arnold, I could show you his picture later if you want. With Gates is Benedict Arnold and a man by the name of Benjamin Lincoln. And I'll show you both of those pictures later. All three of those really are very capable and accomplished American generals. And we're still not to the point where Benedict Arnold's name goes down in history as the world's greatest traitor. That's still coming. Well, Gates and Arnold just could not get along. They were two big personalities... And at one point, they even it, everything broke down in an, a shouting match between the men. And apparently, Arnold was removed from command during the first battle. Which, by the way, knowing Benedict Arnold's massive ego, he probably concluded that that's why they lost. Because I wasn't allowed to be part of the battle. Now, some historians uh, disagree about just how out of the battle he really was where maybe he was still controlling his units from his cabin or whatnot. But there's, without further evidence, it's safe to say that Horatio Gates, who is in overall command, got his way and pushed the little man he doesn't like to the side. October 7th is a different story. Benedict Arnold, in the second battle of Saratoga, he disobeys orders and took command in the field. He fought valiantly, but was grievously wounded in the leg. Now remember, during the invasion of Quebec, he's wounded at that time too. And it was also considered a bad wound. This wound was even worse. It was believed that he would have to be amputated, but he insisted for it not to happen. So the surgeons did their best, and he was left with his leg, but it was in such a bad shape that his left leg was two inches shorter than his right leg. So quite a significant amount of damage. And of course, he's out of action for a while. In the second battle, I said the first battle was a British victory. The second battle is not. The Americans win this battle going away. Burgoyne loses over a 1,000 men in both battles combined. So after the second battle of Saratoga, he is outnumbered 3 to 1. For the next 10 days he tries to avoid the inevitable but as he's being surrounded by the American and Vermont forces he realizes that he is going to have to surrender and so on October 17th he surrenders and this for this point in the war was every bit as important as the surrender of Cornwallis at the end of the the war, at the, at the end of the land war in, in America. Because here's what happens. Here's the legacy of Saratoga. On December 4th, 1777, in Paris, Benjamin Franklin receives two communiques from America. The first one tells of the fall of Philadelphia. This is incredibly disheartening news. The Second Continental Congress, which he's still part of, even though he has been sent over to be a diplomat, 
The Second Continental Congress has to run out of town with its tail between his legs in defeat as George Washington has just completed an entire year's worth of battles, losing almost every one of the battles. It is very, very bad news. But the same day, December 4th, 1777, he also receives another communique from America telling about the absolute stunning victory at Saratoga. Even with both news, the overall result was overwhelmingly positive because it wasn't like the Second Continental Congress was lined up and shot. They just had to leave town. In fact, not even George Washington's army was defeated. They just kept having to retreat. And Howe took his chance to have a comfortable winter in the city when he should have been out trying to force George Washington to surrender his, his army. And short of that, slaughtering enough of the men that the Americans wouldn't be able to fight. But that's not what Howe does. He decides to set up for a comfortable winter. So, all in all, it's a pretty good message for the Americans, even with the fall of the capital. In fact, as France is being informed about these developments, Saratoga was enough of a victory that it gave the King of France his excuse to choose to enter negotiations with the United States. Up to this point, American diplomats are in the city and the French government is refusing to meet with them because the French government does not want to enter into an alliance with a loser. If America is showing no ability to ever win this war, they don't want to have anything to do with it. And in fact, they don't even want to put Britain into a position where they think they're going to side with the Americans if the Americans can't prove that they can win. So Benjamin Franklin and the other diplomats are just sitting in Paris twiddling their thumbs for months until Saratoga. Saratoga was enough of a victory that the government of France opens up negotiations. Now the negotiations aren't overnight but all in all, it kind of was, about two months. Two months later, on February 6th, 1778, France signs two treaties with the new United States. And in the process, by the way, recognizes our independence, becoming, I believe, the first foreign nation to recognize American independence. I do not believe any other small nation somewhere in the world has already done it. I think France is the first one. The first treaty they sign is, actually I don't know if there's a first and second, they're basically at the same time. The, they sign the treaty called the Treaty of Amity and Commerce. So it's an economic and diplomatic treaty between France and the new United States. The second is a treaty of alliance, officially forming an alliance between France and the United States of America. Word of this treaty arrives in Valley Forge. And next week we'll talk about just how miserable the men were at Valley Forge. You got better believe this was this helped morale. It absolutely helped morale. Well, with France on our side, some things start to develop. In early March, so about a month later, France declares war on England, which is something they did every generation anyway. So it's not that big of a deal, but, but as our ally, they've, they're now joining the fray. The Comte de Vergennes, in English, the Count of Virgin, Virgin, Virginis, I guess if you, it's V-E-R-G-E-N-N-E-S. 
but the Comte de Vergen. His Christian name is Charles Gavier, but he's always ever just known as the Comte de Vergen. He is the French Minister of Foreign Affairs. So with, with an alliance now signed, he is now on our side. And he goes to work and he spends some miracles. One thing, he gets Spain to declare war on England in 1779. Spain is also one of those countries that goes to war with England about maybe not every generation, but let's say every three generations. Now Spain, if my research is correct, never really officially allies with us. They're more, it's more like they're allying with France, who then is allied with us. But the Comte de Vergen is able to get Spain involved. To go one further, he gets the Dutch Republic, which we now call the Netherlands. He gets the Dutch Republic to go to war with England for the fourth time. So the Netherlands and England have gone to war four times in the last century or so at this point. He gets them to declare war on in 1780. So by 1780, Britain is at war with the United States of America, France, Spain, and what we now call the Netherlands, the Dutch Republic. So that helps you understand why Britain is actually willing to go ahead with the Treaty of Paris to end this infernal war, because they've got other stuff to worry about. But probably the most impressive move was getting Russia to declare absolute neutrality. So Russia does not side with the United States. In fact, I do not believe they recognize our independence until after the Treaty of Paris. But Russia does not come to the aid of England. England is basically, Great Britain is standing alone. Meanwhile, while all this is going down, the Americans, the American Continental Army, under George Washington, prepares for an absolutely miserable winter at Valley Forge. And that's where we'll leave it off for the night. Any questions or comments? That Treaty of Amity and Commerce, what, what year was that? I missed that. The Treaty of Amity and Commerce would have been, that was the new year, so that would have been 1778. February 6th, which ironically is my half birthday. I don't know if they did this kind of stuff when you guys were kids, but when I was a kid, if you had a summer birthday, on your half birthday you were able to bring cupcakes for all your classmates. So I always recognize February 6th because it is six months before August 6th. My teachers didn't know that. My neither. Yeah, so, so how come on my map there's no Vermont? Because your map is, does it have a date on it? No. This map, Vermont is right here in this, it doesn't have Lake Champlain, but if it did, it would be right here, right at the top of the Hudson River. On this side of Lake Champlain was a, a forested area that both New Hampshire and New York claimed. Okay, I remember reading. And that claim, that that claim ends up becoming the Green Mountain area. Oh yeah. Ends up becoming Vermont. So actually, you look on your your more complete map, and you can see right where we're talking about. So, right on the edge of Lake Champlain is the Green Mountain area, which now we call Vermont. I need to see. I need a visual. Well, that's one of the reasons why I do the slides, because I'm a bit of a visual learner myself. Sometimes, if you see something, it helps. We hope.
hope you have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Rice. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrites at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Rice. The purpose of this podcast is to educate Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.